beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 7. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up and not man. You see, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, and thus it is necessary also for this priest to have something to offer. Now, if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. You see, they serve a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Lord, we pray, even as we have (coughs) seen here this evening, you set aside people for the service of ministry that we would see you in your great ministry with which you have given to us here within our scripture text for this evening, namely that of being our great high priest. Lord, may we, as we read this text, as we study this passage, be enlivened to hear from you. May we be excited for these things that we hear Lord, even though, Lord, you go, you spend a lot of time here on this particular issue, but Lord, you do that because it's so important. Lord, I ask that you would take this text and make it come alive to us here this evening. In your name, amen. Well, I haven't done much street witnessing in my latter years. In my earlier years, I did a lot of street witnessing. And I remember one time when I went out with this one particular guy. Dude, this guy was beautiful. He looked kind of like I would think Jesus would look. He had long hair and a sweet beard. And he cruised around in sandals. And he just kind of floated. Everything he did, he did well. You know, one of those kind of people that drives you just nuts. But yet, he was so cool. I love this guy. So I was out with him as my partner on this one particular night, street witnessing. And we pull into this gas station. And there's this punk rock kid, they're pumping gas into his car, and he had his music blaring, and he had spikes and the you know, hair and all that, and he's just like, as he's pumping the gas, and he had a Bad Religion shirt on, you know that punk band, Bad Religion? So, my Jesus-looking buddy, maybe, I don't know what Jesus looked like, anyways, he walks up to him, and I'm right behind him, and he goes, hey dude, let me give you some good religion. That's a corny way to start it, right? But this guy had like a charisma and the guy was like, he looked down at his shirt and he goes, oh man, they're not that bad. And he's, he's like, no, 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 I'm not talking about bands, man. I'm talking about Jesus. And the guy was like, 
wait a second. And he like stopped pumping gas, turned off his music, and like, like just stopped and paid attention to my buddy. And they started in on this conversation, and it was good. And I'm sitting here going, oh, dude's getting saved. This is great. I'm like just loving this because the guy was like just getting sucked in and sucked in until my buddy got to John chapter 15. No, John chapter 14. You know the passage better than I do probably. (laughs) Philip, he's saying, Lord, I don't know where you're going. How can we know where you're going? But Jesus said in verse 6 of John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And when my buddy got to that particular passage and told him there's no salvation apart from Jesus Christ, this guy all of a sudden lit like a rocket, blew up and just started screaming and yelling and banging on his own car and calling us all the words that he could muster up to call us. How dare we be so exclusive? How dare we say Jesus is the only way? How could you even say such a thing? And my buddy's like, well, I didn't say it. Jesus said it. And the guy, that didn't help at all, right? And it was just one of those times where I thought, oh, dude, this guy looks so good. He's getting sucked in. But when it came to the truth, when it came down to the nitty and the gritty, that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, there was no further this guy could go, right? The Holy Spirit, you see, he got up right to his own depravity, and there was on display, and the Holy Spirit had led him up that far, and who knows what the Lord did after that? Who knows? Maybe he stewed on those things for a long time. Maybe because he got hit, he barked the loudest, you know, kind of thing. Who knows? I never know what happened to him afterwards. We moved on and went on our merry way. But our passage here tonight really teaches us this is why Jesus is so important. Listen, what we want to st- what we want to know here from tonight is how is Jesus's priesthood more special, more better than the Levitical priesthood? We've already seen that it is, but how is it? What makes it more special? And one of the things that makes it more special is that there isn't a hundred priests by which you can come to, right? You were to go to the temple, you didn't know if priest Joe or priest Larry was going to be there to sacrifice the animal for you that day, right? He was standing in the place of God. He was representing God to you. It could have been anybody, though, who wore the turban and had on the garb. Jesus' though priesthood is better because he and he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And there are three things that our texts point out here tonight that show us how he is better. Okay, so if you're taking notes, the three things are, number one, he is not on earth. Number two, he ministers in the presence of God. And number three, he mediates a better covenant. Okay, number one, he is not on earth. Number two, he ministers in the very presence of God. And number three, he mediates a better covenant. Okay, this is how Jesus' priesthood is more spiritual than the Levitical. He starts the chapter by saying this. Now, here's the point in what we're saying, right? Because up to this point, he's been contrasting these two Levitical Melchizedekian priesthood 
but he hasn't really clinched the deal. He said Jesus is better. He's proved that Jesus is better, but he hasn't really shown us how that actually works out that he's better. So he's kind of proven his point at the beginning only to tell us how that works out afterwards, right? Sometimes we do the opposite. We want to tell how the thing is, and therefore this is why it's better, right? But the writer of Hebrews is doing the opposite here. So here's the point of what we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. He is not on earth. He is at the right hand of the throne of heaven. First thing I want to point out here is that we have such a high priest and he is not here on earth. Now you might think you already said that, Pat. Yeah, I did. Good. You're tracking with me. There's this passage. Do you remember in John chapter 4 where Jesus, he comes and he needs to go through Samaria, he says. And the apostles are like, okay, we'll go through Samaria if that's what you need to do. And he sits at the well and he sends all his apostles off to go get food in the town, right? And as he's sitting there, this woman comes in the heat of the day. And she comes to draw water. Now that's crazy, right? It's hot out. How many of you want to carry hundreds of gallons of water right now outside? Zero hands are raised for the listener. <laughs> Nobody wants to do that. But that's when she's coming to the well. So what does that tell you? She doesn't want to be around the other people that are going to be there for some reason. But Jesus is there. And Jesus says to her, hey, will you give me a drink? And she's like, you're Jewish, we're Samaritan, we don't work like that. Jesus says, yeah, I know, I know. But if you knew the water I would give to you, you would be asking of me, not me asking of you. And then they start in on that conversation and get to the point where she begins to perceive that he's something a little more than just a guy who's thirsty. She says, hmm, So who are you? He says, well, go call your husband and I'll tell you. Well, I don't have a husband right now. That's right. You've had five husbands. And the guy you're living with right now, he's not your husband. I perceive you're a prophet. (laughs) So what does she do? She asks him a theological question. Says, okay, Jesus, okay, guy who thinks he knows me, you don't know me. You Jews, you say go worship on Mount Zion. We Samaritans, we say worship on Mount Gerizim. So which is it? You remember Jesus' answer? Neither. The time is coming and now is when those who come to worship the Father, you see, he doesn't exclude their worship, but he says all those who come to worship the Father won't go to that mountain and won't go to this mountain because the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. It isn't about location anymore. It isn't about here. It isn't about here. It isn't about there. You don't need to go to Mecca. You don't need to go to the Vatican. You don't need to pilgrimage here. You don't need a rock in the bush. You don't need nothing. You just need Jesus. Here's why. 
because we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. That is great news for all peoples because that means you don't need to have a specific location to go and worship. Otherwise, your worship isn't accepted. You can worship God anywhere because Christ is already at heaven at the right hand of the Father. And if he's atoned for your sins, he's where you need to be. He's there. If you're going to go anywhere, it's before the throne of God. And Jesus is already right there at the throne of God at, in the majesty in heaven. Notice this here. Look at verse 1 there. The high priest who is seated. Who is seated? What does that imply to us? That Christ's work is what? Finished. The person who's seated is the person who's done working. Right? If I'm working and I come home and I sit down and kick my shoes off, I'm done working. Jesus is a high priest who is done working. Why? Because he has made the perfect atonement for all of those people for whom he intended to die. And now he is at the right hand of the Father in heaven, not on this earth, and he is interceding for them continually. His work is accomplished in terms of redemption so that now as he sits and he provides intercession, prayer for us, he has accomplished all that he needed to do in order for him to intercede for us. So number one, he is not on earth anymore. Number two, he ministers in the presence of God. A minister, verse two, in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. There's this interesting passage. In fact, look at it with me, if you will, right now. Revelation. Ooh. Revelation. Pat never goes to Revelation. Unless it's 21. Or 22. Or 20. No, I don't go to 20 very often. Chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. This is the seven bowls of God's wrath. And I am not interested at all in exegeting what those mean and what those are about. I don't care. Here's what I care about. Verse 17. The se- not that I don't care at all. I mean, not for the, for the sermon, I don't care. That's not the point. The point I want you to see is in verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Yeah, it is done. Look what it says there. A voice came out of the what? What's it say, gang? Temple from the what? Throne. There's a throne in the temple. There's a throne in the temple. There's a throne in the temple. That's crazy. Never, ever in this whole flat portion of the book is there a throne in the temple. Yes, there's a mercy seat, that lid of the Ark of the Covenant, where if you've seen the movie, the angels are doing the thing, and, you know, it's pretty cool looking. That, that, yes, that's called the mercy seat, but here there is a throne in the temple. Jesus is both what? 
a king and a high priest. And here we see John's revelation. Here as he sees the very image of heaven itself, here's a voice come from heaven itself. And this voice comes out of the temple from the very throne of God, meaning there is a throne in the temple, meaning that's always been the case. Our temple, our tabernacle, either one of them here on this earth, was deficient. It did not do what was needed to be done. It couldn't do what needed to be done. It didn't have God's actual presence. We might call the Shekinah glory of God the presence of God, and we do colloquially, right? But this is way different. This is way different where God's actual throne is in the temple, meaning the place where you would come to worship in heaven is the very temple of God, and that's where God's seat is. That's where God's throne is. This is important because it tells us that as Jesus is our great high priest and our king, he is ministering in the presence of God, meaning he is in the most holy of holiest place there is in all of existence and that's the temple in heaven that is the very presence of God almighty I I tried hard this week to rack my brain and come up with a helpful illustration for this and I don't have one so the one I'm about to give you I acknowledge sucks But it's what I got right now, and in some ways it might be a tiny infinitesimal bit helpful. Okay? Now, it just so happened Joel and and I were talking today as we went out Pokemon hunting. Joel didn't, I did, but we went. (laughs) We're talking about, because Joel and I had a bet when Trump became the president. I bet he would get elected, and Joel didn't think he would. And I had no reason other except for just purely the, the celebrity factor. That's all I was going on, okay? He got elected. Now, with that, how many of us in this room here right now know President Trump? How many of us know a family member of President Trump? How many of us know one of his cabinet members? How many of us know a family member of one of the cabinet members? Okay, so right there, none of us, even by association, have even a close proximity to him. We don't have a point of access. None of us have a, oh, well, I know this guy, and I have, you know, three levels removed from, you know, hey, I'm going to get invited to something where Trump might be there and I might shake it. None of us have any of that kind of thing, right? If any one of us were to try to just say, walk up to the White House right now, I know there was a time where you could do this. Praise God, sister. <laughs> and you could walk up to the White House and knock on the door, right? There's a time years ago you could do that. You can't now. If we were to try to do that, we would immediately get arrested, no matter how much we want to say, I know him, I know Trump, I know him, I know him, right? We don't have access. We don't have permission to go there. We, as American evangelical Christians, presume upon the grace of God, and we take lightly the fact that we have access to the presence of God. 
One of the passages that leads us to take it lightly, I think, sometimes, that we looked at is Hebrews chapter 4, where he says there that we can come boldly before the throne of grace to ask for mercy and grace to help out in the time of need, right? And as Americans, we're kind of cavalier, we're kind of cocky, we just kind of go do things, you know? We're known for that all around the world, so we got to own it. I remember when I was in Israel and went to David's tomb, whether it's really his tomb or not, who knows, but you go there and it's a holy place, it's a sacred place, and there's a gate, and then back from the gate, well, it's kind of like this, right? There's a little gate that keeps the tomb up here, the actual like sarcophagus, away from the rest of the public, but then there were some people who could kind of come in here and pray, right? Well, me, I don't know no better. I can't read the signs. I'm American. I'm like, I'm just going to go right up there and check it out. (laughs) So I walk, I start to walk right up there, and I get grabbed in the back of my collar and pulled back and put outside, all the way outside, and told me I wasn't allowed to go in there anymore. Because I didn't have the right credentials to go up there and to pray. I'm not Jewish I wasn't going up there as a Jew to pray, and I didn't know any better. But still, I, in my arrogance, went ahead and went and did that. This passage right here communicates to us the holiness of God. That we can't just come waltzing into God's presence and think, Hey, what's up, God? Which a lot of people do. Hey, Papa. Hey, Daddy. Right? You hear those kind of prayers all the time. And, well, I get the sentiment. I do. I don't think that the Lord, they're believers, I want to give them that probably, but still there's something that is just too casual. The Lord is God. (laughs) He owes us nothing. We are not owed salvation. We are not owed access into his presence. We We deserve nothing. He, in his grace and mercy, has looked down at me, miserable, wretched sinner Pat, and has, in his grace, said, I love you. You are going to be one of mine. I am going to save you from your sins. I am going to bring you into my family. You are now mine where you weren't. You deserve my wrath. You deserve my judgment, but you have become now an object of my love, my affection, and my grace. That's the kind of thing that gives me proper perspective when I come to the Lord. When I come to the Lord, I come to him. Thank you. I make no claim to being here. I come purely because of your mercy, your grace, and your great love for me. You are in heaven and I am not. The earth is yours and it is not mine. You are God and I am your creature. And you in your crazy fantastical love that I am absolutely grateful for for eternity come before you with the boldness that I'm only given by Jesus Christ your son and his intercession for me. So there's great joy in what I just said, isn't there? 
There's great love, there's great passion, but also there's great humility and great respect and great acknowledgement that God is in heaven and I am not, that he is my Lord and I am his servant. I am not in his heaven yet, but even when I am in his heaven, it is still his heaven. Now, what the writer does here is he kind of does a parenthesis in his argument, and he'll pick up back at the end of chapter 6, his third point. But right now what he wants to do is contrast the throne of God being in heaven and the temple in heaven with the tabernacle on earth. Because remember, these are Jewish Christians who are struggling with their Jewish identity, and should they go back to their Judaism because of persecution? And so what the writer wants to do here now, after saying Jesus is not on this earth, he's in heaven, he sits next to the very presence of God, that none of this is what the priesthood here on this earth does, which is ministering in mere copies of the reality. So verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices... So thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. This is why Moses, when he was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See, that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So let's just a few things here. Number one, every high priest is appointed by God, we already saw that, to offer gifts and sacrifices. The gifts and sacrifices, he says in verse 4, are according to the law. Okay? One of the very first instances we find in the Old Testament, once the tabernacle's been erected, is the story of Nadab and Abihu. You know that story? Those are fun names to say. But what are they doing there? They are Aaron's sons, okay? God had called Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. And Aaron, his brother, was to come alongside Moses and be his spokesman. He was the first, if you want to call it, high priest. Once they got out into the wilderness, God gave them specific instructions on how to build this tent, the tabernacle, right? It's supposed to be a certain length. It's supposed to be a certain height, made of certain wood, and certain animal skins. Each tent peg was supposed to be covered in silver. Each grommet was supposed to be a certain metal. Everything was given to Moses with specificity, and Moses was to make that tabernacle according to pattern because the picture was this that he's making here, that he's constructing, is a shadow or copy, it says in verse 5, of that which is actually in heaven. So Moses is told to make everything according to pattern. Now listen, if the shadow and copy was supposed to be this precise, 
How glorious is the actual substance? If God is really, truly this concerned with earthly things in representing him, how much, how much, how much more glorious are those heavenly things where he is actually located. You see, the point of coming to the tabernacle, coming to the temple, was truly to put you in a place of awe. Now, I've been to St. Peter's Cathedral at the Vatican. It's another one of those things where I did something wrong and got pulled out. But that's not the story. (laughs) But the story is, is when I walked into that place... As much as some of the trappings and stuff were kind of off-putting to me and gaudy, the fact of the matter is, is that building inspired awe. I walked in there and I was, wow, this is massive. This communicates my insignificance. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, there's a sense where we love that. It's one of the reasons I love space and I love the universe and studying about the massive stars so far out there and the, you know, all those kind of things because it makes me feel and it, may, it helps me have perspective. Here's who I really am. I'm not all that important in the scheme of things. And if this, the earth that God has created... And the thing that he created on this earth that was designed by himself to point us to him inspired so much awe, how much more the heavenly things. You see the argument here is that if you Jewish Christians are going to go back and worship at the temple, right? The assumption is the temple's still standing here. I think I've said that already a couple of times. The, the temple has not been destroyed in seven, I don't think it's been destroyed yet, right? The Romans came in and destroyed the temple in 70 AD. So when the writer wrote the book of Hebrews, I believe it was before that time because some of the things he says, especially when we get to chapter 9, point to the fact that it looks like there's a temple, temple still standing there. It looks like it right here, I think, too. If that is glorious and you go to the temple and you pilgrimage there and you walk up and you know the Psalms of Ascent were those Psalms that the Jews when they were walking up the mountain to get to Jerusalem would start singing when they saw the temple and they saw the golden roof and they saw those marble walls gleaming in the sun and the glory that was the temple of God there in Jerusalem and they sang these songs and were enraptured in the fact, yeah, we get to go worship the Lord in Jerusalem. And they were joyful and excited about that. And those were only a shadow and a copy of the very place where we go now when we worship. How much more, how much better it is it it for us to come and worship before the presence of the living God through Jesus Christ. You see, beloved... Don't get discouraged when there's like 20 of us here in the room. Beloved, we are coming collectively before the very throne of God in heaven, in the temple, as he sits on his throne through Jesus Christ. Every time we gather together and worship, 
This is no small congregation, beloved. This is a congregation of God's chosen, beloved people whom he has set his affection on and he loves dearly. And we are coming before his presence with rapturous praise saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Your grace is amazing. The heavenly things are better. The heavenly things are more glorious. The heavenly things are so much greater. Jesus, he never had to offer sacrifices according to the law because he had lived a perfect life according to the law. We know that. But as it is, verse 6, Christ obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. I love that verse. It is so hopeful. There is so much joy there. I see him getting up and going, oh, Christ, he's obtained a ministry that's more excellent. Because the old covenant, he mediates one that's better. It's almost like he's stumbling for superlatives because there's just no words to communicate how amazing the new covenant is. That is fantastic. That is a salvation I want. A salvation that I struggle with words to communicate how amazing it is. And we throw around words all the time. That guy's an amazing athlete. He's a superstar. This person is fantastic in their field. We throw around these phrases that really actually, if we're honest, should only be applied and attributed to God. Because this is the point that we're saying. Christ mediates a better covenant. His covenant is so much better. We're going to find next week that the old covenant couldn't do what it set out to do, what it was initiated to do. The point of the old covenant was so that we would see, really, our failure and our need for something greater, something better. And so he says, this covenant is better because it's enacted on better promises. The promises are such that God has said, I will be your God and you will be my people. One of the greatest promises and truths in all of scripture. One that's repeated from the very beginning of the Bible all the way to the very end. I will be your God and you will be my people. We'll see that next week, especially as we look at the new covenant. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. You see, the new covenant is so much better because if the old covenant could have actually saved you, there'd be no need for a second. If you could go and offer all of the right offerings and offer all of the right sacrifices and you could go tithe the right amount and you could pray the right prayers, then you know what? To be perfectly honest, if you did all of that righteously and truly the way the Old Testament lays out, all that does, beloved, is make you neutral. It doesn't give you righteousness. 
Because you doing all of those things is an acknowledgement that you need to cover the sin that you have within yourself. So therefore, all you're doing is you're filling in your own depravity, your own holes, your own depth. What you need is you need something greater than that to take you from where you are and elevate you up to the highest of highs. And that's what Christ does. He fills in all of the sin that you have by bearing the wrath that you deserve. And on top of that, he gives you all of his own righteousness. The old covenant could never do that. The best it could do is make you neutral. But beloved, we need so much more than that. And we get so much more of that in Jesus. We look for the second because it is better. It's enacted on better promises because Jesus is a better savior because he is not on this earth offering sacrifices from animals, but he is in the very heavens of heavens, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, right now interceding for you and for me, beloved. That's amazing grace. Lord, we thank you for these glorious truths that we have from your scripture. Truths that if, honestly, if we didn't have them here in scripture, it'd be hard to believe and probably impossible to believe. But here we have these truths. That you have done all the work for us. That you have already gone ahead and are seated in the heavenlies. A place we can never go and we are not, Lord. But Lord, you've given to us not only forgiveness of our sins, but you've given us holiness in yourself, your very righteousness, Lord Jesus. So Lord, with that, we come before you and acknowledge our gratitude, our love, and our joy for all that you've done in us, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.